Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. SIAC is a university-wide multidisciplinary initiative that facilitates collaborations and builds on the expertise of our researchers to address the region's challenges. If you'd like to know more about SIAC's latest activities, click on the links included on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts about Southeast Asia, Check out the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre's podcast series, SIAC Stories, available on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. Another great sponsor of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned research centre committed to the study of and engagement with Asia and the Pacific. The Institute's research focuses on politics, security and economic development, emphasising the enhancement of links between businesses, governments and academia. For more information on Griffith Asia Institute's activities, click on their website link on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Michelle Ford, the Director of the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney, Australia, and a co-host of this channel. Today, I'm talking to Edward Aspinall and Ward Berenschot about their book, Democracy for Sale, Elections, Clientelism and the State in Indonesia, published by Cornell University Press in 2019. Ed is Professor of Politics in the Department of Political and Social Change at the Australian National University, and Ward is a Senior Research Fellow at the KITLV in the Netherlands. The first two of the book's 11 chapters introduce Indonesia's patronage democracy and discuss varieties of clientelism. The rest of the book is divided into four parts. The first deals with institutions examining the historical origins of freewheeling clientelism and the candidates, parties and institutions that comprise Indonesia's electoral system. The second focuses on networks and resources with chapters on success teams and social networks. The third part, titled Discretionary Control, has chapters on governance and public spending and on bureaucrats and the power of office. In the final part, Ed and Ward compare campaign financing across Indonesia and explain variations in Indonesia's patronage democracy. The book concludes with some reflections on clientelism and the search for good governance. Among the key arguments the book makes are that Indonesia has a distinctive freewheeling brand of clientelism that relies on ad hoc campaign teams and informal social networks rather than political parties, and more on privately distributed patronage and short-term exchanges than on long-term cultivation of particular social constituencies. This is a case in large part, they argue, because of the discretionary control over state resources sits with bureaucrats and elected officials. The book examines these themes through a comparative assessment of the degree and intensity of clientelism in different parts of Indonesia. On the basis of this comparison, it concludes that clientelism both reflects and reproduces deep structures of social and economic inequality that risk locking Indonesia into a vicious cycle that allows wealthy politicians and their business allies to amass ever more opportunities for economic accumulation. Ed, I'd like to start by asking you what brought you both to write this book. 
Yeah, we both came to it from very different directions, actually. So Ward's background is he's a specialist in the politics of India, and he'd spent about a decade or so studying grassroots election campaigning and political brokerage in India. And when he began to work on Indonesian politics, he was in particular working on access to justice project for some time. He was struck by both a lot of the similarities, but also the differences between Indian and Indonesian politics. For me, I'd immediately, prior to working on this project, have just completed a research project on the politics of Aceh. And I was beginning to branch out to other parts of Indonesia. And I particularly remember the moment uh, when I thought that this was a fascinating project. It was when talking to a an academic actually in the province of South Kalimantan who'd been involved in an election campaign for a gubernatorial candidate in South Kalimantan, which is a very resource-rich province, a lot of coal mining there. And he gave this story about how he'd been involved in what's called a success team or an election campaign team of this candidate who'd been distributing billions of rupee worth of goods, but also simply cash through his team. And huge amounts of it were, were going missing as he was distributing it in you know, various campaigners of him were absconding with the money. And it was at that moment that I sort of realised that this was a a topic that was really important for Indonesia, was sort of critical for understanding how politics worked in Indonesia, but also was a, a topic that was really fascinating in its own right, a topic that was sort of full of all the sort of drama and uncertainty uh, of politics that you could imagine. So coming from these two different backgrounds, we didn't plan the project from its inception together, but we both sort of met uh, in Jakarta, I think it was, and realised we had these very similar uh, interests. We'd been conducting research in different parts of Indonesia, but finding very, very similar phenomena. Uh, and that's when we came together and realised that we could work pretty readily together and write a book. And I think the collaboration has produced a much better outcome than if we'd been writing separately. Well, at least I can say that on my own behalf. Ward, I think it's important to start by explaining what clientelism is and how it differs from related phenomena like patronage, pork barrelling and vote buying. Do you mind walking us through those differences? Yes. So clientelism refers to the practice of exchanging personal favours for personal support. And a key feature here of this phenomenon is that it's what political science call a contingent exchange. So it's I offer you something with the expectation that you give me something in return. And this phenomenon has actually not necessarily political background. It stems from how agrarian relations were also organized. But it became a prominent feature of election campaigns, you might say, around the world, as politicians realized that they could mobilize voters by offering them favors like money or hand out foods or T-shirts or more substantial favors like providing a job to somebody or uh, providing public services like promising to build a road or streetlights, um, if a person or sometimes a group of persons uh, would reciprocate that favor with the vote. Um, well, the problem of studying a phenomenon like this is that there are many words that are kind of similar and are used interchangeably. One of them is patronage. In our book, we don't use the term interchangeably. Rather, we use patronage to refer to state goods, state services that are used for these clientelistic exchanges. So patronage goods are, for example, government contracts to build a road or a school or to provide utensils. 
which could become patronage if it's used by politicians as a means to promise that to somebody in exchange for electoral support again. Ed, in the introduction, you say that Indonesia's political system is saturated with clientelism. Can you please paint a picture for listeners who may not be familiar with the Indonesian context? Yeah, so Indonesia experienced a process of democratisation about two decades ago. Prior to that, it was ruled by a centralised, military-based authoritarian regime. And the country since then has introduced elections at many levels of government. So there are uh, elections for the seats in legislatures at the district, provincial and national level, as well as elections for executive government heads at all of those three levels as well. And by the system being saturated by clientelism, what we mean is that you can pretty much pick any area of Indonesia during an election campaign, go there, meet the political candidates, and you'll find that although they do many of the sort of things that we would expect for political candidates in a more programmatic polity, for example, talking about their record of governmental success, if they have a background in government or talking about their particular experiences and attributes that would make them a good leader, a great deal of their attention is really focused on delivering or promising, but very often actually delivering in the lead up to an election, concrete benefits to voters. Um, And that means doing two things in particular. Firstly, it means candidates need to build a campaign infrastructure. Uh, In Indonesia, these are usually called team success or success teams, uh, through which they can build these um, sort of networks of personal connections that link them right down to the community level. And the second thing it means is actually then using those networks to deliver benefits. And those benefits usually can come in one of two forms. On the one hand, they can come in the form of individualized benefits. So the most common form of this is usually known as vote buying, which um, candidates through their success teams deliver individual cash payments to individual voters. But there's a lot of other sort of benefits that can get distributed to individuals as well. For example, cooking materials or cheap household items, that sort of thing, sacks of rice and so on. Um, And the other feature of this sort of distribution of patronage around election time is the distribution of collective goods to communities or to community associations. This is also really, really common. So if, for example, a candidate will visit a particular village and will either actually officiate over like a little road project that that candidate has funded or a project to renovate the uh, local house of worship or perhaps donate kitchen equipment to a local women's group or sporting equipment to the youth club. And there's just a huge amount of this sort of... um, activity that goes on in the lead up to and during election campaigns. And it usually soaks up the lion's share of the expenses that candidates have and also soaks up a huge amount of their delivery. And that's just the element of clientelism that's built in the lead up to elections themselves. After elections, there's also a lot of clientelism in the form of rewarding uh, supporters, um, you know, for example, powerful uh, backers or people who've helped fund the election campaign would often get rewarded in the form of projects or access to government contracts of one kind or another. And it's just very striking that when one visits a local campaign, there's just a huge amount of the energy and focus of that campaign is devoted to this sort of delivery of benefits. So that's what we mean by it being saturated with clientelism. Ward, a key theme in the book is the importance of historical legacies in defining the current system. Can you tell us a bit about what these legacies are and why they still matter? Yes. So in in the book, we trace how this clientelistic politics 
took its present form and we relate it back to a number of elements of Indonesia's political history, and particularly important in our book is the way in which the new order regime sustained itself and relied to a large extent on its bureaucratic structure, not only to govern Indonesia, but also to run election campaigns and to distribute resources to its population. And the long-term effect of that characteristic of the new order was, was that control over state resources was very strongly in the hands of bureaucrats. And that meant that when Indonesia embarked on its democratization process, its newly elected politicians did not have as much control over, say, handing out government jobs, uh, public services, contracts, etc., as their counterparts in other countries uh, had. So they had to really wrest that control away from politicians, but also from uh, bureaucrats, but also they were relatively weak in a sense that they didn't have a strong capacity to build up connections with voters by providing all these services to, to these voters because they didn't control them yet. And that was a reason why we argue in the book, parties are relatively weak in Indonesia. Of course, these legacies intersect with another important feature of the post-98 electoral landscape, and that is the emphasis on candidates rather than parties. Ed, can you tell us what this has led to? It's possible to sort of imagine an alternative Indonesian post-Suharto history in which Indonesia adopted an electoral system that really emphasised the role of parties and drew the attention of voters towards parties rather than individual candidates. But Indonesia took a different pathway, in particular in 2009, when it adopted what's called an open list proportional representation system for its legislative elections, which means that even candidates, what I mean, to cut a long story short, it effectively means that candidates even running for the same party are basically competing against one another. So what this means is that individual candidates really have to construct their own electoral machinery every time there's an election. Uh, so, for example, a particular candidate running for a particular party in a particular legislative district uh, will, first of all, draw upon their friends, close family members, perhaps business associates to construct the sort of top tier of their success team. And that those top tier members of the success team uh, will then recruit people, you know, their own friends at a sort of slightly lower level. And in this way, candidates can, on their own bat, construct these success teams which sometimes consist of many thousands of members and the goal is to sort of have your individual brokers, vote brokers, organise through these success teams sort of present in all the main geographical areas of your electoral district and potentially have brokers on every street, indeed in every few households, able to persuade their neighbours and deliver benefits to them, often to deliver cash to them in order to, to persuade them to vote for you. But it leads to this, what we describe as this really competitive, almost freewheeling form of clientelism, because you can imagine thousands of candidates, sometimes hundreds of candidates in a particular district, each constructing their own success team, each trying to recruit these vast teams of brokers and each trying to distribute cash and goods and other benefits to communities. So it makes the sort of the competition for brokers, the competition for voters' attention incredibly uh, intense. But it also means that parties lose a lot of their leverage to control and direct the distribution of government benefits 
throughout the entire electoral cycle. So not only at election time, but also after it and during government. It means there's often a lack of coordination within government, but a real emphasis on the distribution of patronage at election time itself. Well, as Anne's just suggested, informal social networks are a really important part of this puzzle. In the book, you make the distinction between networks of affect and networks of benefit. What's the difference and why is this important? Yes, so what happens as a result of this kind of freewheeling form that Ed described is that basically politicians try to instrumentalize any kind of social network that is available from football clubs to ethnic associations to religious associations. And all are basically might be political capital if they have a loyal membership and if they might somehow be used to induce the members of that organization to get them to vote for you. Now, and in discussing that wide range of associational activities, all these different organizations, we basically distinguish two forms, networks of effect and networks of benefit. And by that, we mean that you, with networks of effect, we mean any type of organizations that are linked not through any kind of interest-seeking, but rather by a shared identity or a shared association with a, with a group, uh, like a religious organization or a football club or uh, sometimes an, an, an ethnic group. Um, but you also have these social networks that are particularly set up for the means to to play in this kind of politics, to organize their members as some sort of a vote-pooling device uh, to promise politicians a substantial number of votes and in exchange for this, getting contracts or money or uh, other kind of uh, favors through these political connections. So these were, uh, we would call, uh, networks of benefit. Ed, you've already talked a little bit about vote buying, but I'm curious, how does it sit within a broader tactical landscape that includes individual gift giving and club goods? Yeah, it's interesting. And that's that's one of the questions that candidates themselves often wrestle with you know a candidate who goes into an election with a certain amount of you know money in their as their sort of ammunition for the election campaign will often sort of debate with themselves and with their key advisors about how much to direct towards these sorts of club good donations so for example you know donating money to repair the roof of a chapel, if we're talking about a Catholic area or, or to you know, renovate a, a sports club uh, in a village versus individual payment. Um, and there's a bit of variation across regions, but one of the critical issues here is the degree to which you can rely upon or which candidates feel they can rely upon the leaders of the social networks concerned if we're talking about a collective donation, so for example, a donation to the chapel I mentioned before, how much can the candidates feel that they can rely upon the leaders of that particular religious community to deliver a block vote? And that'll vary a lot among candidates, but many candidates will conclude that there's this basic sort of free rider problem with these club good strategies, that club goods are good to sort of are useful in sort of let's say, promoting an image of a candidate as someone who cares about the community, who has a sort of a, um, a charitable outlook on life, let's put it like that. Um, but when it comes to the crunch, if you donate to, say, build a village road or a, a house of worship, there's often a question about whether the leaders of that community are really able to deliver the vote, that many people um, will instead receive individual cash payments 
from rival candidates and deliver their votes to those rivals, even while benefiting from the gift of the club good. So many candidates will feel that, you know, club goods are sometimes a way of opening the door is the way some candidates describe it, a way of sort of introducing yourself into a community. But if you really want to lock in individual level votes, you need to back that up with individual cash payments. Now, that's not a problem if you're a very wealthy candidate with access to a lot of resources, and a lot of the wealthiest candidates will do both uh, strategies. But many of the candidates with more limited resources really you know, feel that they face this dilemma about how much to distribute into communities, how much to distribute to individuals. Because even distributing individual payments, of course, doesn't necessarily deliver a guarantee of success. So far, we've been focusing largely on private spending, but of course, public spending is also an important part of this story. Ward, can you tell us a bit more about the role that public funding plays? Yes. So, of course, the cheapest way to run an election campaigns and to avoid some of the dilemmas that we just discussed is to have control over state resources. And that's the reason why incumbents are at an advantage, because they have some control over the bureaucracy and, by extension, over how budgets are spent and who gets which contract and where uh, which community gets benefits. Uh, so what you see happening is that uh, once in power, ruling politicians try to use their control over resources in order to build up those team success networks that we mentioned, but also to either fulfill earlier promises or to create new uh, indebtedness of people so they feel like we should re- uh, repay the favor and support the second election run of this particular candidate. So the key feature here, though, and what, what makes the control of the state resources uh, complex in an Indonesian story is that it's very centralized in the hands of the district head, when we talk about local politics or the governor, while parliamentarians and by extension their party have very limited control over these resources. So that means that parties themselves or non-incumbents have very little to distribute. And this is one reason why relatively compared to other countries, uh, vote buying is so common in Indonesia that out of a lack of access to state resources to distribute and to hand out to bind voters, non-incumbent politicians are often forced to take recourse to private resources like money and engage in vote buying. A related question here concerns the politicisation of the bureaucracy. Ed, to what extent is this an issue in Indonesia? Oh, this is a huge issue. And this is one of the really distinctive features, actually, of Indonesian electoral politics and something that really distinguishes it from many other countries. And part of it here is the importance of the historical legacy. You know, the Suharto regime ruled Indonesia for 32 years, was this very centralised authoritarian regime that really ran on the bureaucracy. The bureaucracy was the sort of the central pillar of rule. And the legacies of that period are still very strong in contemporary Indonesia. In particular, when you go out to areas of Indonesia which are more rural, less industrialised, where they're more dependent upon the government budget for the local economy, you'll often find incumbent candidates. So we're talking here about district heads, governors, mayors, Uh, those sort of heads of local executive government who are really able to instrumentalise the bureaucracy in order to maintain their grip on power. And that includes at election time. So, for example, 
because bureaucrats are so vulnerable to the directives from those local government heads, for example, if you disobey the directives of the local government head, you might end up being sent to a really remote and unpromising part of that district. Um, you might even, the Indonesian phrase is de non-jobkan, it means to be non-jobbed, i.e. to be removed from all substantive authority and therefore often access to illegal or informal funds. So the result is that very often for incumbents, they can pretty much turn the bureaucracy into their de facto success team. And we have one really nice quote, for example, from a political advisor to a candidate in NTT province in eastern Indonesia, who just details how an incumbent can remain in power simply by allocating vote targets to all the various, you know, school principals, bureau chiefs, village secretaries and so on within their region. And one result of that is that Indonesia, especially when we compare it to some other highly clientelistic countries, has this really high rate of incumbency return, especially for these elected regional government heads. Once you're in power, once you're elected, it's often very um, much a pathway to re-election to turn your domination over the bureaucracy and over the regional budget as your chief tool for achieving re-election. Civil society actors, of course, also have a role to play. Ward, can you give us some examples where civil society has played a relatively strong role and why? Civil society organisations, of course, come in a, in a broad range and, and we already discussed how some types of civil society organisations are important in facilitating clientelistic exchange and engaging in this vote pooling. But you also have a new, an emerging form of uh, civil society organizations that are not that clientelistic inclined, perhaps, but are having to deal with this system. For example, labor unions who engage in something which is often called political contract, that they want certain offers from politicians, promises which are not that clientelistic, which are more like policy-related offers like support for minimal wages or upholding labor standards. Um, and then they try to get politicians to sign up to that kind of promise. And uh, in exchange, they then direct their members to support that particular politician. In that kind of civil society activism, you can see some of the seeds for how Indonesia might move away from this very clientelism-saturated politics. Although I must say, we only observed it in certain areas where you have strong labor unions and some other organizations. It's not yet a common practice. We'll pause here for a moment to hear from our sponsors. When we come back, I'd like to step back and discuss some of the overarching themes of the book and the interregional differences you identified in your research. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's seasiainstitute as one word. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies. I'm talking to Ed Aspinall and Ward Berenshot about their book, Democracy for Sale. As I mentioned in my introduction, the book claims that Indonesia's system of clientelism is distinctive. Ward, can you tell us how you came to this conclusion? 
Yes. So in our book, we not only try to describe how Indonesian elections and in particularly the clientelistic strategies work, but also we try to compare Indonesia and, and see how it's different from other countries that are similarly clientelistic. And in particular, we compare Indonesia with Argentina and India, which is not a coincidence, uh, as I studied in Indian politics from up close for the previous 10 years. I was personally struck by the fact that I saw election campaigns that were similarly clientelistic, but organized and done in very different ways. And the key difference here, and that we note in the book, is that India and also Argentinian uh, election campaigns are party-centered, meaning that these clientelistic exchanges are really organized through political parties, while Indonesia's election campaigns take that freewheeling form that we already discussed earlier, is that you have these much more ad hoc, versatile networks that candidates have to set up for themselves, personal networks. And that means also that the exchange of favors that clientelistic networks goes through these more versatile networks and these uh, civil society associations, rather than more stable institutionalized party networks and their local brokers who do that kind of campaign work in India or Argentina. Ed, I'd like to ask you to dig a little deeper into the difference between clientelism and programmatic politics. Would you say that these are sharp-edged categories, or is it more of a spectrum rather than a dichotomy? Well, in theory, there is a sharp edge between them because clientelism, as Ward suggested, at least in theory, is based around this idea of contingency or the sort of the quid pro quo. So it's really a question of targeting. So when we talk about clientelistic distribution, the sort of calculation that goes on at the heart of the question of who gets what is, will that person or that individual or that group deliver their votes or their political support to me as the candidate in exchange. Whereas with programmatic delivery, uh, in theory, you're talking about delivery of a benefit, let's say a pension scheme, to a broad category of people who uh, fulfill some sort of needs-based criteria. In the case of a, a pension, it would be like an age criteria or the a case of a scholarship for poor children, something about family income and so on. So at least in theory, and as the literature describes it, uh, there is a sharp distinction between them. But in reality, uh, there is, of course, a great deal of blurriness in, in these lines, and in particular in that area of club goods, which we write quite a bit about in the book. So if we do consider this blurriness as part of maybe some sort of spectrum. Can you give us a couple of different points along it that really distinguish between clientelism and programmatic politics? Well, the sort of classic clientelistic exchange is the delivery of a cash payment, of a cash gift in exchange uh, for a vote. I mean, it's even a bit tricky there because very often, in fact, when candidates or success team members distribute a cash payment, there's not an explicit quid pro quo, although that's often implicit. If we take the idea of uh, a programmatic delivery where we could talk about something like the pension or the scholarship for poor children I just mentioned, but the blurriness comes insofar as the delivery of these programmatic goods is often or often takes place in a clientelistic mode. So I'm thinking, for example, of a candidate we came across in the province of NTT in uh, eastern Indonesia again, who 
set him up as sort of a broker or a point person when it came to distributing access to government scholarships. So he would send his success team members out to villages. They would collect the names of poor families and then he would act as the sort of the organiser for delivering those names to the relevant government department, I guess it was the Department of Education, that then paid the the scholarships to those families. And he would then turn up at the villages at the moment the first payments of those scholarships were made and there'd be a ceremony and he would present himself as sort of the personal benefactor who'd made the payment of those scholarships available. So you can see here that's just one example of the way in which programmatic and clientelistic delivery can be really blurry when it comes to practice. Of course, this points to the messiness of practice as well. And in the book, you make a plea for taking informal politics seriously. Boyd, can you explain the implications of doing this, both in terms of your conceptual approach, but also your methodology? Well, one motivation we had for writing this book is that we felt that formal, visible politics, the politics of parliament, of parties, of news conferences, etc., gets prioritised and gets most of the attention and most of the press, certainly, while we felt that actually what determines who gets to power, but also how governments work, is actually also to a very large extent these informal dimensions of politics, by which we mean these clientelistic exchanges. And so we wanted with our book to argue for the need to take these informal dimensions more seriously. And that indeed has different dimensions. And one of them is in terms of methodology. This book came out of two sets of different uh, research activities. On the one hand, uh, we, we engaged in what you might call ethnographic immersion of immersion into campaign networks. We followed politicians around, tried to trace these networks for a longer period during different election campaigns. Um, and on the other hand, we did an expert survey where we tried to use the knowledge of experts throughout Indonesia to get a broader sense of how common they felt that these informal dimensions of politics were. And that was also a way to get these informal dimensions beyond the anecdotes and the stories and really give some indications of, uh, some hard-edged indications of how common they are. Let's turn now to the differences you identified within Indonesia. Ed, how does the situation in somewhere like central Kalimantan compare with, say, West Java? Yeah, there is a big difference. And this is really brought home by the expert survey that I should say was really Ward's uh, project, something that he initiated and ran before we even really began to collaborate intensively on this book. Um, And from the survey, uh, we developed something we called a clientelism perception index. And it does show that there is quite a lot of variation across Indonesia with some of the highest scores in places like central Kalimantan, as you mentioned, and relatively low scores in West Java. So in places like West Java and other more sort of industrialised, urbanised areas in in Java. So that's one key distinction, that the overall sort of level or intensity of clientelism is much greater in central Kalimantan. But the other big distinction um, is the nature of politics in those places. Central Kalimantan is a heavily plantation-based and mining-based district, and there's a lot of concentration of power within the government, in particular in the hands of the district head, and it makes for a much more 
um, a form of politics with much less space for sort of forms of civil society engagement that challenge clientelistic politics. It's a place where the politics of the bureaucracy are much more dominant. And so it's a much more sort of, um, let's say, a lopsided form of clientelistic politics. And Ed, based on that kind of comparison, you've concluded that clientelism flourishes best in areas where control over economic activity is most likely concentrated. How does this differ from conclusions that others have drawn about clientelism? Yeah, so one of the biggest, the foundational sort of assumptions and repeat findings actually in the literature on clientelism uh, is that clientelistic exchange tends to be associated with low levels of socioeconomic development. And when you think about this, it makes sense that poorer people, it's often argued, have um, a lot of reasons to prioritise the sort of the immediate benefits of, a, say, let's say, a one-off cash payment at election time, uh, rather than thinking about the sort of the longer-term benefits for the public good that can come from a more programmatic form of politics. Poorer people have a greater uh, immediate need for payments, they have shorter time horizons and so on. But our finding didn't really match this, that clientelism didn't really map onto levels of socioeconomic development or even levels of poverty, with one exception, uh, that is vote buying, that that did seem to have an effect. But the overall uh, degree or intensity of clientelism really is greatly affected by what we call this degree of economic concentration. So the more that a particular district is dependent upon highly concentrated form of economic activity, in particular, you know, the plantation sector, mining and so on, and in particular, the more its economy is dependent upon the government budget, then those sort of other factors we talk about, you know, incumbency advantage, the political influence of the bureaucracy, um, the limited ability of other social actors to challenge incumbents, um, even things like the, the nature of the public sphere. So we'll find, for example, there's much less critical media space in those sorts of regions with highly concentrated economic control. Um, and it's those places where we find uh, clientelistic politics most intense, but also most sort of coercive, I guess you could say. So overall, you've painted a pretty grim picture, but there are some interesting outliers. Would you identify Surabaya in the book as an example of a case where reformers have successfully challenged the status quo? Can you tell us something about this case and what makes it different? Yes, so you have, particularly across Java, you can see the emergence of a particular type of politicians that do try to do things differently, uh, and particularly that seem to want to avoid politics as usual kind of clientelistic exchanges. And it's interesting to look at those examples from up close and also see the, uh, the challenges they encountered. In uh, Surabaya, we saw the emergence of a mayor, Risma, who on her very first week of being elected, told party officials that she wouldn't appoint or promote the bureaucrats they wanted, and she wanted to promote bureaucrats based on merit. So two weeks later, she then had a motion of uh, no confidence from the local council. But, and this is key to understanding the difference, she managed to survive this because of a civil society outcry of mobilization of people who not only spoke out for her in newspapers, but even organized demonstrations, which forced these big party bosses who were angry that political usual was not followed to back down. And I think this is where, which explains why some of these cities are different, but also gives some hope. 
that in areas where you have a stronger civil society and a more open press, you see a demand uh, for new politics emerging and also a capacity to actually defend leaders that engage in that kind of politics. It's nice to finish on a, a more positive note there. But just before we wrap up, it'd be interesting to hear a bit about what you're currently working on. Should we start with you, Ward? Well, um, I've uh, submitted a research proposal for which this week or the next I'm hoping to hear where it's successful that really quite directly builds on this research project. Uh, this is a research proposal on campaign finance, uh, and this project uh, hopes to study why some election campaigns in some countries and some regions are more expensive than in others and ideally find ways to bring election costs down because that is really the downside of the kind of politics that we have been discussing, that these election campaigns are made so expensive by these practices that only rich people can run or only people who have the backing from rich people. And this creates a very uneven political scene where economic elites basically uh, uh, have a lot of say and normal people do not. Yeah, out of this book project that I did with Ed came this motivation to delve much more into this and see whether some more structural solutions to this kind of political inequality might be found. And what about you, Ed? What are you working on now? Uh, so a bunch of different projects. One is a, a book project, which is currently under review, actually, written with a number of other colleagues that takes the observations we've made of Indonesia and applies them on a Southeast Asia-wide context. So working with Meredith Weiss, Paul Hutchcroft, Alan Hicken, we're doing a comparative book about clientelism across the region, focusing especially on the Philippines, Indonesia, and Malaysia. And then I've also been working on women politicians in Indonesia and the particular sort of challenges they face in dealing with this sort of political environment, working with a number of colleagues. Um, And the longer term goal is to do detailed study of political dynamics in village level elections in Indonesia as well. Ed and Ward, thanks for joining us on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss your new book, Democracy for Sale. You've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can find conversations about hundreds of Southeast Asia-related books on the channel. You can download or stream these interviews free of charge from the New Books Network website or subscribe through your favourite podcast app.